Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Sometimes just the thought of taking a deep breath uh, makes everything seem like okay for just a moment. I assume that all of you at some point in time have had, or you felt super stressed or super anxious or super whatever your emotion is when you get a little volatile, right? You, someone said, hey, take a breath. They just remind you. You're not, they're not instructing you how to do it. They're not telling you um, how they're reminding you that you need to breathe, just to take a deep breath. And what I want to do is if you're like taking notes, I would just write on the top of my notes that what if surrender is breath. Like, well, I want us to think about this really differently. We've been talking about this idea of surrender and sacrifice and being reminded. And today, um, what I thought as I've been looking through this, this was such a different approach because when we thought about surrender, I've often thought about it as what a lot of us do is that we feel bad about something that we've done or we feel bad about a struggle that we tend to get stuck in all the time or we have some kind of regret that we don't want to have anymore. So we say, God, I'm going to surrender this to you. We're going to give it, it feels like a, a, a reaction to our regret a lot of times. And as I was thinking about this, the classic passage that's always been in my mind, I've been, you know, been growing up in the church and heard this for a long time, but the Romans 12 is always this classic, you know, verse for personal surrender. It says to offer, Paul writes, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, in view of God's, and being able to see him, in view of his mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto him. For this is your spiritual act of worship. Uh, my word for this year is detail, um, detail. That's my one word. If you've not picked your word yet, uh, it's only March the 14th. Uh, so you still have some time. Uh, but I write mine at the top of my calendar every single week. Uh, it's, it's in my journal throughout it. And one of the things that it's not so I become more organized, it has nothing to do with that. Um, there are lots of reasons, but one of the things that's really interesting to me, um, because I love like uh, architecture and I love things like this. I love details. I love the fact that when you see things, you have to look closely. And whenever you see something that's got a lot of detail in it, um, the more intricacy that is, the, the closer that you have to look and the more attentive you have to be and the longer you have to gaze and pay attention to what it is that you're looking at. And what you realize when you do that is there's actually more to see. And that's what I want in my pursuit. When I, when I think in view of God's mercy, I'll be able to see him and just keep looking closer and closer and closer and closer and not get so rushed and not be in such a hurry and not try to rush past to get big, broad, huge concept strokes, but to really learn what it means to walk with him and to have intimacy in the intricacy in which our relationship is designed to be. So that's my word, and this has a lot to do with this message because this message was uh, sort of inspired out of the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus was actually part of the reason why I picked my word. And Leviticus is this book we've been looking at sort of as a foundation uh, because it's where its position is. It comes out of uh, where Egypt was enslaved by the Egyptians for generations, and then they've been miraculously delivered, and now they're moving into this promised place. And many of you have heard that story or that scenario in some place. Released from oppression and into the promised land. And so there's this picture in our heads of what this looks like. And then Leviticus is the first thing that we get 
about this new way of life. And it's all these tedious rules and rituals. It's very detailed. And so I don't like details. I like big picture things. So I really began in reading Leviticus is like, like putting things under my fingernails sometimes. And so you're reading this and you see all the intricacies of what happens when you do this or when you do that, how you have to, to offer something to, to say to God, right? To say something to God. And what became really interesting to me is this extraordinary connection to time. When you read Leviticus, what you'll notice is the beginning opens up and it says that God was going to meet Moses from inside the tent. Um, when the book is over and Numbers begins, it says that God meets Moses inside the tent. There's this shift in how God relates to his people because of what he reveals or demonstrates or gives them in terms of this sacrificial system. And basically what the system was, was it goes something like this. And I'm just going to uh, write this out for us. Uh, I drew this last week, but I'll do it again uh, just so we can play along. That So there's something that has separated us from God, some distance we feel, and something that we owe him in order to be with him. This is what we're made for. This is assuming a lot about that. And the system that basically God created is, he said, if you guys, if you guys will build a tabernacle or a temple, if you guys will build a temple, it was a tabernacle originally, and then as you got more sophisticated, it became, that's a good temple, isn't it? And so, put a little more detail right there, a little cornice. And so, um, the more, the more uh, we would build a temple, and then we would offer a sacrifice. And when we would do this, God would agree to meet us halfway. And he says that my presence, my glory will dwell there. And that was the arrangement that was made. The first system, the first system hinged on two really important principles that I think are worth noting. The first is that we would offer the sacrifice. We would offer the sacrifice. And the system also had a second thing that we would build the temple. And that's really important for you to kind of get this picture here because this is the system that God says, if you build a temple, if you offer a sacrifice, I'll meet you and my glory will dwell in this place. So it'll be this clean space and the, the blood of the animals was, was given as an offering to cleanse that space so that the place would be holy and it would be right and that, that the atonement that was given for our sins would be acceptable and we'll be able to dwell in this place. So that's, that's the picture that's going on. What's interesting to me is it goes through all these offerings, the fellowship offering and grain offering, offerings of thanksgiving, offerings to say we messed up, offerings to say I'm sorry, offerings to say I didn't know what I did was wrong, but here's what I'm going to do anyway. All of these things are in there. And it goes on and on. Then in, then in uh, the middle of the book, in uh, chapter uh, 16, it talks about this real specific day of atonement where the priest would offer a sacrifice and he would offer one sacrifice for himself and the other, he would place his hands on a goat. He would send the goat out into the wilderness to symbolize our sins being shouldered by this sacrifice and then removed as far away as possible. And that would be the picture. And then it goes on and it talks about the priests and what they're supposed to do. And then it talks about a lot of skin diseases and all kinds of weird stuff. And what you'll find is something really interesting. That it's connected to time because whenever you would have a particular sin, you would have to go and you would have to go into like timeout for a week. 
If you touch something, you would go, oh, you touch something, you got to remove yourself from the fellowship, from the, the, the assembly for seven days, go quarantine, come back, take a bath, and then you'll be clean again. So there's all this function of time and how time was used as sort of a punishment to keep up with how holy you were. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever done this. But maybe you struggle with things. Maybe you have struggles in your life. Maybe there's struggles around things that you do that you wish you wouldn't do. Maybe it's some kind of uh, vice, smoking cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. Uh, maybe yours is cussing. Maybe yours is pornography. Maybe yours is losing your mind or losing your cool or yelling at your kids or whatever your thing is. I assume everybody's got one, right? And when you do it, you go, oh, I feel so terrible. And you say, I'll never do it again. And sometimes you even want to punish yourself. You'll be like, your kids, you yell at your kids, and now your kids are being good. You're like, I don't even deserve for my kids to be this good. You feel like somehow you need to be punished because of what you've done. And then what you start doing is you start counting the days that you haven't done it. Has anybody done this? I've been, I haven't cussed in 12 days or 12 hours for some of you. I haven't done this in 30 days. I haven't done this. It's been a whole week since I lost this. We used to track this with my kids. When we get, my kids were small, especially my oldest. She was such a, oh, it was so tough. It brings back like, oh. And I, I remember this because it would be like, we would have like a moment and it would be like a complete train wreck. She's like two and three. <laughs> Not like recently when she was really small. And we would say this and we would both be in tears because she would have been like a toddler like she's supposed to be in those of uh, a tantrum. And then I would be like an adult. I threw a tantrum and I wasn't supposed to. I would say, you know, we'd say bad days are, are gone um, forever, only good days ahead. Do you ever do this to your kids? Bad days are gone forever, only good days ahead. And the next day is guess what? Another train wreck. And there's this function of how time seems to create patterns and scenarios and we get into things and we're too deep because we've got all this history with a person or with a relationship or with this. We've got all this history and we don't want to forsake that. And this is exactly what Leviticus is about. It's about a reordering so that you don't keep living under the same rule or governance or oppression or struggle that you have, but rather there's a promised freedom that's been made available to us. And it's learning how to walk in that. That's what we're talking about. That's what surrender is about. It's not about you feeling bad for what you've done. Because then you're like, how do I get out of this? It's about trusting what might happen in the future if something different happens. And so what happens is in Leviticus, it gets to the end of the book, and then it gets into all these, this, these calendar issues. It talks about the Sabbath. It's interesting, the whole thing is organized around the Sabbath. Then you have the Passover. Then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it says you've got to keep these feasts and you've got to keep these festivals. You've got to keep this calendar. You have the Festival of Weeks. You have the Festival of Trumpets. You have the Day of Atonement. You have the Festival of Tabernacles. You have all these things. Eventually what you have is you have a Sabbath year. Every seven years, you take a whole year and you just let all the ground lie fallow. And then every seventh, seventh, every seventh Sabbath year, every 49 years, the following year, it's called the year of Jubilee. This is when everything gets reset. Everything gets reset. Any debt that you had gets forgiven. Any property that you have, have taken because you sued someone or this happened, it all goes back to the original owner. Everything gets reset. How cool would that be? There's actually nowhere in the history of the world they found where this was actually ever applied. We could never make it 50 years without something ultimately stopping the system. 
clogging it up where we could not go back. You cannot do what was required, what was asked, what was made available. We could not do it. It could not happen. It wasn't possible in this broken world. What I think is really interesting about this is you find this smack in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And it says in Leviticus chapter 17, because it's talking about the, the, the life of the creature and why these sacrifices would be acceptable, right? It says, this is why, because the blood's going to be offered and the blood is a symbol of life. So I'm going to receive this blood as an exchange for the sin that caused death. I'm going to receive it on your behalf, to know, in other words, to make you acceptable in this moment. And here's what it says, for the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given this sacrifice to you. I've, I've made this way available to you. Look why. To make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes the atonement for one's life. I have given it to you for what? In order that you might make atonement for yourself. And some of you are going, I don't see the problem. And that is the problem because that's how you've lived your whole life, that you are the one who is responsible to make atonement for yourself. And what you're realizing is it cannot be done. It cannot be done. To have to comply. So what ends up happening is you say, God, was this enough? Did I do this okay? Do you accept this? And it's always this sort of precarious thing. So your surrender looks like this. You show up at church on Sundays. You're like, God, I blew it again, but I'm gonna try harder this week. It's always about trying harder. I remember what it's like to live under this kind of pressure. I had a, I remember this from seventh grade. I had a girlfriend in the seventh grade. Um, I met a, a, a girl who was shared about three. I have an incredibly vivid childhood memory. I remember everything. I remember her name. I remember, every, I can't say it because I don't know if maybe she watches from somewhere in the world, but I'm not gonna say it. But I remember she was a year older than me and she was a cheerleader. And I remember thinking she was way out of my league. I had no business liking her. And so you know what you do in yourself? This is before social media or Twitter or any, any stuff like that. This is like back in the day where you actually had to talk to people and like do your own investigative stuff. You couldn't stalk anybody. So you, you kind of find some friends of friends. You go, hey, I'm thinking about it. I'm kind of like this. You're real nervous. Would you find out if there's like a chance? And you find out, yes, you would be, there would be a chance. If you talked to her, she would say, hey, back to you. So it's like, hey. She says, hey, and you let the relationship kind of blossom a little bit. So the next day, right, you start to deepen the conversation. And I didn't know this, but there were rules for these kind of relationships. I had no idea. And one of the rules was that you had to actually like do something to start the relationship. They call it now DTR. This is, there was no such thing as friend zone back then. And so what you had was you're sitting there, you're talking, and as the relationship grows, so then it takes maybe like three or four days, you have to ask them this question, will you go with me? You have to say those words, and they have to respond with like a proposal. They have to say yes or no, or I'll think about it or whatever. I think about it means no, but they'll say like yes, and then when that happens, everything changes. It's all of a sudden, now I'm in a relationship. And I don't even know what this means. And so I'm learning this as I go. Seventh grade, she's eighth grade. I learned that now there's implications, that there's expectations of being in a relationship. And so what would happen is I learned that I have to now walk her to her class. So I'm like, okay, got this. I figure out my schedule, figure out hers. So the first day we were going together, that's what we called it. We were going together. So I get her to the locker, hey, and she says, hey, and so I'm walking her to class. 
So I walk her to class. We get there, drop her off her class. And then I sprint back across the other side of the school to get to my class. Like, whoo, breathing hard. Like, whoo, made it. So then it goes on again. The next day I find out, they say, did you hold her hand? No, I didn't hold her hand. I didn't know I was supposed to hold her hand. Well, you're supposed to hold her hand or she's going to break up with you. Oh my gosh. And so it's like just more and more and more. So I'm not, I never even held a girl's hand. So I'm like holding this girl's hand like, is it waffle? Is it, what, like, what do you do here? So, so I'm holding her hand, walking her to class uh, the next day. And then every day, it was like a new rule that I was, I'm looking, like reading the Bible, trying to find these rules. I'm trying to figure out what is going on. And this went on. And on the sixth day, she broke up with me. <laughs> End of our, I've never talked to her since. It was like <laughs> devastating. Because I didn't do what I was supposed to. I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. There was just, just rules and rules on top of rules and stack, stack. I had no idea. And some of you, this is exactly what your relationship with God looks like. And if you're really honest, it's what every other relationship that you have looks like. Have I done enough to earn your approval, to demonstrate that I'm worthy of your affection or your love? Have I proved, have I done this? And the cruelty of the fall, the cruelty of sin is that there is no such thing as enough. You're always going to be hanging by a thread wondering if this is the thing that finally gets you rejected or abandoned or he didn't measure up. So what God did, this is, this is exactly how the New Testament presents this system. Hebrews 10, I've been talking about this. We've done some videos on Instagram to kind of help you read through this with a little bit of, of care and, and detail because he says these sacrifices were offered endlessly and could never make us perfect. There was no such thing as enough. So it says that God did for us what we could never do for ourselves in that he sent his one and only son as a sacrifice once and for all to forgive us of our sins, to atone for our sins, to make sure that this system would never have to have authority or rule in your life ever again. This is what the gospel is. A lot of you have never heard the gospel like this because you keep trying to equate it to what it means to go to heaven or not. And it's about how to find the life you've been created for. Do I believe in eternity? Of course I do. But it's, it's not about punching a ticket. It's about finding who you have been created to, to be and the life that you have been created to live. This is the whole point of what God came to do. He said, so if we draw this over here, here's God. Here's us, me and you. And what he did is he says that he offered one time for all time a sacrifice, a final sacrifice, full and final. God didn't meet us halfway. He came all the way to where you are. And what he says is that anyone who receives and trusts in this sacrifice, anyone who believes in me, who receives me, to them he has given the right to become children of God. Anyone who believes and trusts me, to them he will cause them to be born again. To them he will save. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved, right? It's, this is the language that we, we, it's all through the scriptures. And what he says is when this occurs, that we become the place in which God resides and his glory dwells in us. The new system is completely opposite. God offered the sacrifice and we became the temple. That's what the gospel did. So 
Back to time. When I think about this, everything in, in, uh, in the ordering of things all centers on how we use our time, how we find rhythms. And so God, even when he started, when he created the world, uh, Genesis chapter 1, there's six days where God creates everything. In the beginning, God spoke, said, let there be light. There's light and dark. So he separated all this stuff. He created everything. And on day six, he creates us. Human beings showed up. And so we showed up. He says, hey, I want you to till the garden. I want you to exercise dominion. I want you to rule the world. We're like, oh, awesome, great. Day seven, we show up for work. And guess what God says? Take a break. That's day one. Human beings are like, hey, you just made us, told us to get to work, told us to rule stuff, and now you want us to take a break. He said, yeah, that's right. The seventh day is rest. I've been here a lot longer than you guys. You just showed up, so I want you to follow my lead. And here's what I think he begins to demonstrate. I think it's important for us to understand rhythms and breath and surrender. Because I think the purpose, I think the point of this is that God established the first act of being created was to receive life and to operate from rest, to operate from rest. You realize that the Jewish day started on sundown the night before. The Jewish calendar is organized so that Friday starts Thursday night after dinner. Do you know why? Because the ordering is you rest first and you rise in order to join God in his work. That's the picture. It's rest and you rise to join God in his work, in his creation, what he's called you to do. Most of us, we start our day in the morning. As soon as we get up, our feet hit the ground, and everything is on, and then it's full on until we crash at the end of the night. We don't operate from rest, right? We operate as though rest is like this thing that eludes us all the time. We can never even stop our souls long enough to find it. It's because we're completely disordered. We're completely disordered. So what happens, this is what I want us to do. I want to give you a real tactical tool this morning, today as we kind of wrap this series up. So it says that we are called to live in this way. This is what has happened to us in the gospel. So how do we live this out in time, real time? If there's no longer, like you have to be in time out for seven days, like what does this mean if you have been made perfect like we learned last week? Well, what the, the theological term is that we have the indwelling spirit, that God's spirit resides in us. Paul writes like this in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is the place where God has come to dwell and reside and you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice because that's the clean space in which his work is done and through which his work is done. This is what's on the table for you and I as we think about this. And one of my favorite pictures of this is found in Galatians chapter six, uh, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter five, and it talks about this idea of the Holy Spirit and God's presence in us. And this is, we're just going to read this whole section, talk through it, and I'll give you an exercise when we'll be done. It says, so Paul writes, so I say to you, basically the opening part of this is, this is for freedom that you've been set free. You're, you're called to live in the promise of this freedom that we don't know how to possess well. We tend to take freedom and use it for our own advantage and create prisons out of it, right? That's what we tend to do. So he says, it's for freedom that you've been set free, but you're going to need a way in which you walk in this, in which you learn how to deal with this. So I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. There's these two pulls in us, always. One drawing us towards the life that we were made for. This is that deep longing. The other one pulling us to satisfy ourselves now with whatever's available to us. 
This often looks like what it means to go back to the patterns and the things that have kept us in prison for so long. It's what I wrote down. It says here, it says that if we walk by the Spirit. So I just try to meditate on this. To walk by the Spirit means you've got to sort of stay in time with Him. To walk with somebody means you have to stay with them where they are. It involves time. It involves moving through moments with another person. To walk by the Spirit. What is the promise? Is it up there? What's the promise? That you will not be able to gratify all these other pulls. You ever struggle with that pull in your life? No, just me. This is a promise that you, we have to learn how to hang on to. If we walk by the Spirit, these things will hold no sway in our lives. Whatever struggle, it doesn't matter how deep it is, if you, are walk, if you learn how to walk and understand to surrender and to submit to His rule and authority in your life in that moment, these things do not have power there in that moment, in that place. Most of us freak because we wonder it's going to be like 10 minutes from now or 20 minutes from now or we're not in this season, we're not in that season, we start freaking out about the future, but it's in that moment. This is why surrender has got to get to this place for us. He goes on, he says, these things are in conflict with each other. They're always going to pull against each other so that you cannot just do whatever you want. You don't just throw your hands up and go, well, whatever then. You can't, you can't get sucked into those things because you feel like there's no hope or you feel like there's no way out. And this is just what happens when you read the Bible and you kind of let it just, just consider what it's saying. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. This is extraordinary. So now we got another little thing here. If you were led by the Spirit, you, you are no longer governed by this, am I enough? There's something else, it's, it's something else at play. Paul would say this later on. He says, we do not live under law. We live under grace. And a lot of us think, oh yeah, grace means I get to do whatever I want. You don't understand grace and you don't understand relationship if that's what you think. Grace is not licensed to do what you want. Grace pulls us into something that is more powerful and life-giving that you would never, ever want to let go of when you experience it. But there's always a pull. What it says, if we walk by the Spirit, we won't gratify these former lusts. If we are led by the Spirit, if we sort of stay in step with Him, if this happens, then it says we'll learn how to walk in freedom is essentially, if we're not constantly pulled back into our former patterns. And we learn how to live under a new rule of freedom. This is exactly what it looks like. And so how does this govern us? How does this govern us? We'll keep going. The acts of the flesh are obvious. This is just to get us all in the, in the party here. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And here they are. This is what it looks like to be pulled back into all these other things that pull us so hard. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Have we missed anybody? Oh, you're just checking. Because then he just adds in, and the like, all of it. I think his point is, this is what you ought to feel comfortable about. Some of you are sitting here, and when you hear those words, and you go, that's me, your first inclination is guilt and shame. And what you need to hear is, you ain't alone. If this was written 2,000 years ago, they've been showing, like, welcome to the party. We all got something. That's why this matters. If you could do this on your own, this system would have been perfectly fine. 
Something has fundamentally shifted and changed. And what Paul goes on and says is, I'll warn you as I did before. That those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what we hear is, oh, if I did this, then I'm not going to heaven. That is not the way you read this. The inheritance of God's kingdom is something that begins with us right here, right now, in this moment. That's why you can't, you, we say, we have this, this view of time that says, when this, or we can't, we can't find a sense of peace here because of what's going to happen here. We can't find a sense of freedom here because of what we might do there. We can't, we, it's always something that's happening in front of us instead of what's happening right here uh, in us, in this current moment. And that's what I want for you to understand. This is the way in which we fight these battles. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love and joy and peace, forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. But those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions with its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is where I want us to push really hard. Because a lot of us, the lust of the flesh, those things that pull us, it says in there, we will not gratify them, which means there's a possibility that to do and indulge brings gratification to us. It feels good. It feels good to exercise your will over another at the expense of them. It sounds terrible coming out of your mouth, but it's true. If you've ever like made something happen by your will, it feels good. There's a, there's a little bit of a fan. It fans something in us. You could go through any pleasure, any, anything. You could find some way in which it sort of speaks to the worst parts of you, but at the same time, it sort of makes you feel at least a little bit alive, but it's not the life that you were created for. And so what we have to do, and this is, this is why I think it says, for those of us, I believe deeply in a moment where we trust Christ, where we look at him, we say, what you have done for me, I receive and I trust, and it is a moment. It's a place where he comes in and he says that he has made us perfect and now he is making us holy. He has made us perfect. We have received forgiveness. We would say we are born again. We would say we are saved. We have trusted what he has done by saying, God, I receive what you did for me in Jesus. To con the confession of our sins and the acceptance of his sacrifice for them. That's what, sal that's what it means. It happens in a moment. And then we think, okay, now I'm good. And you go back out and something happens and you feel like all the wheels have just come off. Somehow it didn't stick. And what you end up doing is you end up asking him in your heart again. And for some of you, this has been your whole journal of surrender, right? Every Sunday you ask Jesus in your heart because surely if Jesus was in your heart, you wouldn't have did what you did Wednesday or Tuesday or Saturday. And so you just live in this chronic cycle of offering this sacrifice out of effort. Jesus said this, and I've, I've, I've heard this, and I've, it's taken me so long to noodle on this enough to sort of begin to understand it. In John 12, he says this, he says, because they're asking him some questions, and, he said, and I've always heard that, you know, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it, but if you try to gain your life, you're going to lose it. I'm like, ah, I don't know if I like all that. Whoever hates their life in this world will lose it, but whoever loses their life will, be, will keep it. And in that middle of that, Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. You ever heard this verse? Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
And I often have wondered, like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can get my brain around that. What I think this is about, when we talk about this way of the Spirit, it says that we, those of us who are here, have crucified the flesh. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. The reason a lot of us struggle, if we're really honest, is because we are alone. Because the thing that needs to die, we keep giving it CPR. We keep breathing life into it because it's an escape hatch. It's something we have control over. It's something we can feel good about. It's the last vestige of sanity that we have that reminds us of how good things used to be. We do it at the expense of our future. What happens is our surrendering to him, all of our intentions are given to him in order to preserve a life that we actually need to lose in order to find the one that we're made for. This is not easy. This is not easy. But this is the way that God has made for us to live free. Freedom is such a strange place to live and it takes intense reordering. It takes intense surrender. And this is why I think surrender matters because what it says is that in this moment, in this moment, I'm living in the reality of God's kingdom and I'm living under the rule of his love and those things do not have sway over me in this moment, in this moment of surrender. So here's what I've learned. What a lot of us do is we try to create rhythms, right? Which is just what we're talking about as to how we're going to surrender. And I call this a surrender interval. Perhaps you've heard me talk about this before. But it's one of the the most important things I've learned in my own personal walk. And a surrender interval is this. A surrender interval is simply the amount of time between points of surrender. Okay, the amount of time between points of surrender. So let me tell you what I mean by this. So suppose we'll just make this uh, point X. This is when your kid goes to Fuse. And if you you want, you should go to Fuse this year, summer camp. So Fuse Camp 20, 20, 2021, whatever year this is. I think 2020 is like seven years ago, but you get the idea. 2021, so they go to Fuse Camp this summer. They're all in. God, last year with quarantine, it was, it was so hard, but this year, man, I'm committed to you. I surrender. I surrender my life to you. And they come back and they don't do much of anything until the next Fuse Camp 2022. So from Fuse Camp 2021 to Fuse Camp 2022 is a surrender interval of how long? You're playing along, so you're good at math. One year, one year from 2021 to 2022. That's a surrender interval of one year. So what I used to do as a youth minister, I thought that's way too long to get kids to summer camp. So I'm gonna create a camp every three months. And you know what's gonna happen, right? Every three months, these kids go to camp and they do what? They surrender. Oh God, uh, these last three months, since, since Fuse, since Ormond Beach, since whatever, these things are really tough. But God, I'm, real, I'm back. I'm, my intentions are good. I mean this. I promise. I make some commitments. And their surrender interval is how long? Every three months, right? You're playing along really well. So then we figure out, some of you, right? This is what happens. It kind of gets ramped back. And then you go, oh, I got to be at church every single week. And every Sunday, it's the same story. Come in. Some of you ask Jesus in your heart every Sunday. But you come in, you're like, God, I'm, I'm serious this week. I mean it. Like I, and, and it's not that you don't, you do. 
You actually do. You do mean it. You want this. So every seven days you come in, you say the same thing. You've been using that prayer. God, I tell you this, receive this gift. You know, offer how every seven days, so your surrender interval is what? Right, one week, seven days. Some of you are really good. And you've got your phone with your wallpaper and it says, God, today I receive this gift. Good morning, Lord. I received this as a gift to you. I surrender this today. You use the online devotions. You're like, yes. You're really good. Your surrender interval is how long? 24 hours. You know what I've learned? 24 hours is way too long. Way too long. I get up in the morning, first thing out of my mouth, and I wake up, God, thank you for this day. I receive this as a gift from you. So therefore, I want to respond to you. I'm like feeling so good about my walk and God and my life. And then your kids get up. Or your phone rings or your email goes off. And what the heck happened? Most of us, either you say, I'll wait and do it tomorrow or you'll just wait till the next Sunday and come back in and do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. I've learned that the ordering of our lives and this reordering that we're intended for is organized around rest. And rest isn't like taking a break. Rest is precisely trust. It's connection. It's receiving what God has done and then joining him in that. And for those of you, right, who the wheels come off and you right now you feel it, your anxiety's at bay, your depression's at bay, your this is at bay, you feel right now, right now in this place where you're sitting in this room or you're watching online and you're with me, you feel like it's okay, it's going to be okay. And the next thought is, but tonight or tomorrow or when this guy calls or when that guy calls or when this happens or that happens and then the wheels come off. The problem is grace and surrender are like breathing or like breath, right? Your body longs to breathe. You know this, right? I mean, if you don't think so, just let somebody put their hand over your mouth for a little bit, see how that goes. If you know them, you'll only kick them, right? If you don't know them, they're gonna worse. Anyway, you get the idea. We, 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 there's a rhythm to it. We have to breathe. We're made to breathe. We're made to pull in. We're made to pull out. It's the centering thing. Whenever we start to feel pressure, if we can just breathe. And you just, no one has to teach you this to just remind you to breathe. This is the same thing. Your soul was designed to trust. Your soul wants to trust. The purpose of surrender isn't to gain approval. It's not, it's, it's not your intentions. It's not your promises. It's not how serious you are. You're, the goal, the reason, the purpose of surrender is not to demonstrate that you're serious about it this time. It's to simply trust in this moment. That's why it's like breath. Surrender is like breath. It's to take a breath. It doesn't begin with your promise. It doesn't begin with your intention. It doesn't begin with your shame. It doesn't begin with your guilt. It begins with seeing Him in view of God's mercy. Paul could have chosen anything 
to put there. I urge you in view of God's mercy off your bodies in this moment and then in the next and then in the next and then in the next. Let me tell you what I've learned for some of you right, right now what you feel in this moment, that sense of peace that you actually feel because you're like, okay, I'm doing this. That same exact thing, that same exact power, presence is available to you in every single one of the hard ones. If you learn how to breathe, how to surrender in that moment. For those of us who are in Christ, we have crucified the flesh. It needs to die. Because if it dies, guess what happens? It bears fruit. Fruit is born out of that place. For some of you have been so afraid to let the things that have brought you so much comfort, you've been so afraid for those things to die because you're afraid of what lies ahead. And the problem is that when you refuse, if a seed falls to the ground and doesn't die, it remains alone. And you're not built for that. So I want us to just take a breath. We're going to sing the song again. And I just want you to just sit there and just let this, just kind of take advantage of this moment. That one of the lines says, he's given me, space to breathe. And so I'm just going to stay still until it sinks in. Until it just sort of starts to take a little bit of root. And I invite you to just, we don't get a lot of time. We lost an hour for crying out loud. But just, just a few more moments, just in this moment to feel. And what you're, what you're doing is you're declaring your trust that what you are experiencing right now in this moment is going to be available for you in the next, as we learn to live in surrender. Father, thank you that you've made a way that was unlike anything we would have imagined that frees us from the pressure of trying to prove something. And God, how that simple thing ends up poisoning so many of our relationships and so many of our pursuits, trying to measure up or figure out. God, I pray for the folks who are in this room who are watching. Whatever their struggle is, no matter how deep, that you would give them the courage to bring it full bore to crucifixion. What remains on the other side of that is fruitfulness like we cannot imagine. God, I know for some of us, the, the things we've held on to are, are our comfort. They're the most familiar. And in some ways, they actually work. But God, we remain alone. So I pray that as we take a breath, that we'll just let your love seep in and that as our bodies just sort of relax, rest, we'll find ourselves intimately held in the hands and the arms of our Father. So just use this moment, Father, for your purposes to remind us, to remind us to breathe. Now lift this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who's our King.